Welcome to the Whitefields Community Church Podcast. For more information about our church, including location and service times, visit us online at whitefieldschurch.com. If you are blessed by this message, please consider sharing it with others and leaving a rating or review on your favorite podcast app. Well, with that, please bow your heads with me and let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are a God who loves us and a God who wants to speak to us and direct our lives. Thank you, Lord, that you have a vision for who you desire us to become and who you are making us in Christ. Lord, thank you for what you have done for us. And Lord, we pray that you would help us, that we would respond by faith to your word and to everything that you desire to do in our lives. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, early one Sunday morning a man's wife came into his bedroom to wake him up because it was Sunday and it was time to go to church. And she said, honey, it's time to wake up. We got to go to church. And he said, oh, come on. I don't want to go to church. I want to sleep in. Leave me alone. And she said, no, no, no. Come on, let's go. We got to go to church. You got to get up now because if you don't get up now, we're going to be late to church and that won't be good. And the man says, oh, but I don't want to go there. So boring. And the people there aren't even nice to me. I don't want to go to church. And she insisted, right? She said, come on, you have to get up. You have to go to church. And he said, why? And she said, because you're the pastor. You got to go, right? Well, listen, uh, I've never felt that way because you guys, you guys are awesome. But listen, isn't it true that many times who you are determines what you do? So who you are determines what you do. Your identity determines your actions. I remember when my first child was born, you're, you're kind of struck with this realization. Whoa, now I'm not just who I was before. Now I have a new identity. I'm somebody's dad. It happens when you get married as well. I remember getting married and then realizing, okay, I'm not just like who I was. Now I'm, I'm Rosemary's husband. That's my new identity. I received a new identity when I did that action. And so the thing is that along with certain identities come certain actions, right? There are things that I do because I'm a husband. There are things that I do because I'm a dad. And it reminds me of a story I read about Princess Margaret. That's Queen Elizabeth II's younger sister. And when she was younger, uh, Princess Margaret was uh, attending an event with her mother, the queen mother, and uh, Margaret had to do something. Her job was to stand up walk up to a microphone and greet the gathered dignitaries. And she tells the story that right before she stood up to walk to the microphone, her mother leaned over and said to her, now remember, you're a princess, so go act like one. In other words, her mother was encouraging her to act in accordance with her identity, right? She didn't earn that identity by her actions. Rather, she was that, and she was being told, now go act like it. So what does it mean for us as followers of Jesus And together, collectively, as a church, what does it mean for us to act in accordance with our identity? Now, here at the beginning of the new year, we're taking three Sundays to seek out God's vision for us as a church and as individuals in 2022. And knowing God's vision for our lives, for who we are, it begins with knowing who we are and our identity. Because who we are determines how we will live and how we will act. And so in this series, what we're doing is we're looking at the passages in the Bible which tell us about God's work in the city of Ephesus 
and what these passages teach us about God's vision for us as a church, individually, and as followers of Jesus. Last week, we looked at the beginning of the church in Ephesus. This week, we're going to look at a passage from Paul's letter to the Ephesians. The title of today's message is, A Community Living Out the Gospel. A Community Living Out the Gospel. And here's what we're going to see in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. We're going to see that having been saved by God's grace, we form a community united by the gospel, where we are equipped to serve and love like Jesus. Now, every week, I give you a takeaway truth, a summary sentence that functions as our outline for studying this passage. We're going to take that sentence and break it down as we study our passage today. But I encourage you, take a photo of it, write it down, whatever you got to do to get this thought in your mind so you carry it with you throughout the week. Having been saved by God's grace, we form a community united by the gospel, where we are equipped to serve and love like Jesus. So the first part of this, having been saved by God's grace. Ephesians 4 begins with these words. I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. This book, Ephesians, is a letter that Paul the Apostle wrote to the Christians in Ephesus while he was imprisoned in Rome. Notice the very important word that Paul uses at the beginning of this verse. He says, therefore. Whenever you see that word therefore, you want to circle it, highlight it, underline it, because whenever you see the word therefore, you have to stop and ask yourself, what is that therefore, therefore? The therefore is always there for a reason. And what the reason is, is because whenever you see that word therefore, it means, it's basically saying this. Now, everything that I set up until this point was building up to this conclusion that I'm now about to make. So everything that's come before this builds up. Here's the conclusion. Here's the application. Here's what that information means for you personally here and now. now what, so what has Paul been talking about up until this point? Well, in the previous three chapters, Paul has been explaining who Jesus is and what God has done for you in Christ. He explained that in Christ Jesus, you are forgiven of your sins. You are renewed and made new. Your life has been redeemed. You've received a new identity. You've been adopted into God's family. He sealed you with his Holy Spirit. He has made peace between you and God. And beyond that, he is working actively right now to do more than you could ask or even imagine. He is working out his eternal plans in and through your life as we speak. And listen, what God has done for you in Christ, as Paul tells us here in Ephesians, it's so rich, it's so high, it's so lofty that you could get a nosebleed just thinking about it. And what's so amazing is that all of these things that God has done for you, you know what? You didn't earn any of it. You didn't deserve it. It, you, it wasn't merited by you. Look at what Paul says in Ephesians 2, verse 8. He says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And it is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Now, that word grace simply means gift. That's what a gift is. You don't work for a gift. You don't earn it. It's not a wage. A gift is an expression of somebody else's love that they give to you. That's what grace is. And so these things that God has done for you, they're God's gift to you. You don't earn them. You didn't deserve them. You didn't work for them. These are his gift to you because he loves you. And the way you receive these gifts, Paul tells us there, is by faith, by believing and by trusting in him and saying thank you for these gifts. 
Now listen, it's really easy for us to begin to think that the Christian life is primarily about what we need to do for God. Give me the list, the checklist, so I can check it all off. What are the things that I need to do for God? What are the five things that I need to do, right? Or what, 10 things, or whatever they might be. But listen, what we learn here in the letter to the Ephesians is that being a Christian isn't primarily about what you need to do for God. Being a Christian is primarily about what God has done for you in Jesus. And yet, here's the thing. When you really understand it, when it sinks down from your head into your heart, when you understand what God has done for you, the love that he's shown you, the grace that he's given you in Jesus, you cannot help but respond in a myriad of ways, right? It moves your heart. It compels you. It constrains you to respond. And that's why right after telling us about how God has saved us by grace, Paul then tells us this. He says, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. In other words, we don't do good works so that God will love us and accept us and bless us. Rather, we do good works because God already loves us and in Christ has accepted us and blesses us. We're not trying to earn God's favor. Rather, we are responding to the favor that God has bestowed upon us already in Jesus by his grace. That's why going back to chapter 4, verse 1, Paul says, Therefore, in light of everything that God has done for you in Christ, here's how you should rightly respond. And here's what he says by walking in a manner that is worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Just like the queen mother told Princess Margaret, you're a princess, now go act like one. In the same way, Paul is telling us and the Ephesians, right, the us and them both, here's what he's telling us as Christians. You are a child of God. You have been redeemed. You are a church, right? As a church, you are the body of Christ in the world, the people of God, the redeemed people of God. This is not just an identity. It is also a calling. God has given you this identity, and he's called you to live it out. And so in the following few verses... Paul is going to show us and explain to us what it looks like for us to live out this identity and this calling that we have as people who have been saved by grace. What he's going to give us is God's vision for the church, God's vision for the church, what it can be, what it was designed to be. Now listen, here at Whitefields, we have a vision statement and a mission statement. If you receive those things we were handing out the door, you receive one of these bookmarks. It has our vision statement and mission statement on it. We'd love for you to use that in a book that you use or in your Bibles. But here's, here's what it is. Our vision is to build and foster a loving, passionate, engaged, and healthy Christian community to influence and bless Longmont and beyond. And here's how we endeavor to do that by making disciples of Jesus Christ through teaching the word of God, engaging in the mission of God, and raising up leaders. Now listen, those statements, they might just, oh cool, you wrote some sentences. Well listen, we actually like labored for months over those. We discussed, we labored over every word meticulously to come up with these. And you know where we got these ideas? It wasn't just like, what do you think a church should do? Well, I think we should do this, right? No, no, no. We got these ideas from the Bible, and specifically, most of these ideas come from this very passage that we're studying today. Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 16, where God gives us his vision for the church. And so that brings us to the next part of our sentence. Having been saved by God's grace, 
What do we do now? We form a community united by the gospel. What does it look like for us to walk worthy of the calling we've received in Jesus? Well, first of all, Paul tells us this. We who have been saved by God's grace are called to form a community united by the gospel. Here's what he says in verse 2. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So Paul gives us here the qualities which should characterize a person and a community who truly understand that they have been recipients of God's grace. And here are the qualities, he says, and notice this, these qualities primarily speak about how you ought to relate to others, how you relate to others. And here's what he says. A person who really understands that they've been a recipient of God's grace, they will be three things, he says. Humble, gentle, and patient. Humble, gentle, and patient. Now, that's interesting because in the ancient world, humility was not considered a good virtue that anyone would aspire to. Think about it. Who wants to be humble and lowly of stature? Gentleness was not considered a highly regarded value because humility is the opposite of bravado. And gentleness was considered a sign of weakness. And into this world came Jesus Christ. And here's how Jesus described himself. In the one and only statement he gave describing what he is like, here's what he said. I am gentle and lowly of heart. That's how he described himself. I am gentle and lowly of heart, right? Other people come around and say, I don't know if you know this, but I'm kind of a big deal. Jesus came around and said, I'm gentle and lowly of heart. And that word lowly is the same word in Greek that Paul uses here that's translated humble. It's the same word, both translated lowly of heart and humble. It's the word in Greek, tapainos, same word. And think about what that means. When Paul says here in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 2, that, that be humble and gentle. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying be like Jesus, who described himself as humble and gentle, gentle and lowly of heart. Same words. You know what humility is? I like this definition. Humility is the ability to be happy and content even when you're not in control. Let me say it again. Humility is the ability to be happy and content even when you're not in control. And I want to challenge you to ask yourself that question. Have you gotten to that place in your life where you can be happy and content even when you're not in control? How about when life doesn't go the way you wanted it to and you have no control? How about when somebody else is the boss or somebody else is the leader and you're not in control of the situation? How about when it comes to, to surrendering control over your life over to God? How can you be happy and content even when you're not in control? I'll tell you what the secret is, by the way. The secret to being happy and content when you're not in control is this. If you know that there is a truly sovereign, providential, loving God who is in control and he is working all things together for your ultimate good. If you know that and if that's true, then you can be happy and content even when you're not in control. You can let go of bravado. You can be humble. You can be gentle. And Paul says, and be patient, bearing with one another in love. Throughout the Bible, God talks about himself and who he is, particularly in the Old Testament. Whenever he talks about his character, who he is, he describes himself as being patient and long-suffering. 
patient and long-suffering. So again, think about this. Paul is encouraging us to act towards others in the ways that God has done to you. God has shown you grace, so now you show grace to others. Now think about this. The fact that Paul encourages us to be humble, gentle, patient, to bear with one another, to keep the unity of the Spirit, what does that presuppose? It presupposes that there will be conflicts amongst Christians. It presupposes there will be times when Christians don't see eye to eye. It presupposes there will be times when Christians may offend you, when they may hurt your feelings. And it's telling us this, before any of that takes place, decide right now, what is your posture? What is your disposition going to be towards other Christians and towards the church? I think this is so incredibly relevant to today. You know why? Because we live in a time that is socially and culturally so incredibly divided. We live in a very divided time culturally and societally, right? Our culture has been described, and I think this is pretty accurate, it's been described as a culture of outrage. Do you guys feel that? Do you notice it, right? We're outraged at this. Last week, we were outraged about that. Next week, we're going to be outraged about something. And the media tells us, thankfully, we have the media to tell us what we're supposed to be outraged about today, right? And the very first thing you do in the morning, right, you wake up, and before you say hello to anybody, you check your phone so you can find out what you're outraged about today. What are we all upset about? Let's find out before I do anything else, right? I'm going to turn on the TV and let them tell me what I'm supposed to be upset about, right? And if you're not careful, here's what happens. This culture of outrage, it can seep into every area of your life and it is super toxic, and it divides families. I saw it myself with my own extended family. I took a trip this summer, and uh, we visited some family, and particularly some family members. They live five minutes apart from each other, and they moved to the same community so they could live five minutes apart from each other. But now, they don't speak to each other anymore because they're divided over their opinions to the point where they no longer speak to each other, and they view each other as enemies. Because here's what happens. In a culture of outrage, what happens is that people's opinions become more than just opinions. They become your identity, right? It's not just what you think. That is now who you are. And this can happen among Christians as well. And what Paul is telling us is that if you have been a recipient of God's grace, then listen, you have a new identity in Christ, and your identity is not found in your opinions about things going on in the world. Your identity is found in Jesus and what he did for you, how he gave his life to make you a child of God and make you part of the people of God collectively. That is your identity if you are a Christian, and that is your primary identity, right? So you can have opinions, but those opinions aren't what gives you your identity. Your identity is who you are in Christ. And because that's your primary identity, who you are in him, everything else is secondary. You can have opinions, but they're always secondary to your true identity, which is who you are in Christ. And as a member of the body of Christ, right? You're a member of Christ's body in the world. Listen, if your primary identity is who you are in Christ and everything else is secondary. You know what will happen? You will be doggedly determined to do what Paul describes here in Ephesians chapter 4, where he says to strive or to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. You know what that looks like? It means that you won't be a person who is quick to just throw up your hands and say, I quit when someone offends you. R rather, you will be patient 
bearing with one another in love, just as God has been towards you. See, as recipients of God's grace, we form a community that is united by the gospel. That's what the church is. And we refuse to let Satan get a foothold among us. We refuse to let Satan divide us or turn us against one another. The unity of the Spirit, Paul says, is something we must fight to maintain. Now listen, we don't create this unity. We're not like, okay, guys, we got to create some unity. No, no, no. The unity is not something we create. The unity comes from our identity as children of God and as the people of God in the world, as the redeemed people of God. We don't create this identity. We receive it. It's who we are. But it is our job to maintain it. So we don't create it, but it is our job to maintain it. And so what do we do? We strive to maintain the unity of the Spirit. And what does that look like? Well, I'll tell you what it looks like a lot of times. It looks like dying to yourself. Right? It looks like being humble, patient, quick to forgive, bearing with one another. And we don't let this world's issues divide us. That's not who we are. So Paul calls it the unity of the Spirit. And that's important too. The unity that we have as Christians is a spiritual unity. It's not a structural unity. It's not an organizational unity. It's not a denominational or ecclesiological unity. One of the quickest ways that you can see that this spiritual unity exists amongst Christians is the quick fellowship that is possible between Christians of different races, different nationalities, different language groups, uh, different economic classes. You put them together, and immediately they will have a bond of fellowship because they have the same Lord Jesus Christ and the same Holy Spirit filling them all. You know, if you look around the world today, and even look around our city, right? There are a lot of different churches. There are a lot of denominations. And you know what I say about that? Good. You know why? We need a lot of churches to reach a lot of people. And that diversity that exists amongst Christians doesn't mean that there isn't unity, Right? So we can have unity in the midst of diversity. Notice it says the unity of the Spirit, not the uniformity of the Spirit. And look at what it says in verse 4. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. As Christians, everywhere in the world, we are all part of one body. We have the same Holy Spirit. We have the same Lord. In all the ways that we as Christians may be different, we share these things in common. And these things, are they not far greater, far more important, far more consequential than any differences of opinion or style that we might have? So God's vision for the church is that we would be a place where those who have been saved by his grace would form a community united by the gospel. But then that raises a question. Okay, we've created this community united by the gospel. Now what? Like what's next, right? Okay, so we've got it. We're a community united by the gospel. What do we do as a community united by the gospel? And that's what Paul tells us starting in verse 7. And that brings us to the next part of our sentence, which says this. Having been saved by God's grace, we form a community united by the gospel, and here's what we do, where we are equipped to serve and love like Jesus. So that brings us to verse 7, which says this, but grace was given to each of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. 
Now, in verse 8, Paul is quoting from Psalm 68. Psalm 68 foretold that when the Messiah would come, he would give gifts to people when he ascended into heaven. And what Paul tells us in verses 9 and 10 here in Ephesians 4 is that Jesus did this when he resurrected from the grave and ascended into heaven. But the point of what Paul's saying in this section is found in verse 7 where he says this, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now remember, the word grace means gift. And so the point is, to each one of us, which means what? To every Christian, God has given certain gifts. Do you know that? There are ways that God has gifted you so that you can do his work in the world. So every Christian has been gifted by God in some way to do his work in the world. And he says in verse 11, and he, God, gave the apostles the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. These verses are so important for understanding God's design and God's vision for the church. Notice what it says. God gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds. By the way, the word shepherd in Greek is the word pastor. That's where we get the word pastor from. It's the Greek word for shepherd. And that's what a pastor is, a person who shepherds God's flock like a, like a shepherd shepherds sheep. And so he also gave the teachers. And what did God call these people to do? Did he call them to do the work of the ministry? No. Did you notice that? He called them to equip the saints so that they could do the work of the ministry. And who are the saints? Well, that's you. It's me. A saint, in this sense, is any person who has been sanctified by Jesus through faith in him. And so if that's you, if you put your faith in Jesus, then you are a saint in this sense. And so he says this. Think about it. He's saying, first of all, God has gifted you in certain ways. Remember what we read back in chapter 2, verse 10? That having saved you by his grace, God has good works that he has prepared for you to walk in them. And so in order to equip you so you can use the gifts that God has given you, so you can walk in the good works that God has prepared for you, to that end, he gave these positions and roles of leadership in the church. And what that means is this. The primary job of pastors and leaders in the church is not to do the work of the ministry. It's to equip you to do the work of the ministry. Friends, God has gifted you. God has called you. God has prepared good works for you to walk in. You know, one pastor I know, he's a little bit older. He has three kids who are grown, and I think they're in their 30s. And he says that, you know, because he's a pastor, sometimes he meets people and they say, oh, you're a pastor. Oh, you have grown kids. And they ask him, are any of your kids also in the ministry? And he says, when people ask him that, he always says the same thing. He says, yes, they're all in the ministry. And they say, oh, well, that must be wonderful that you get to work with your kids at the church. And he says, oh, no, no, none of them work at the church. What are you talking about? He says, no, no, they're all in the ministry. One's serving the Lord as a doctor. Uh, my daughter, she's serving the Lord as a stay-at-home mom. You know, my, my son, he's serving the Lord in his job where he works in finance. 
You know, because people have this idea that serving the Lord, that's what pastors do. Oh, brother, out there serving the Lord, good for you, right? No, 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 listen. Uh, or they might say, serving the Lord is what you do once a month, you know, when you volunteer at the church to fill that role. But listen, I'll tell you what, those things certainly are service to God. That is serving the Lord. But you know what? The work of the ministry isn't just what takes place in here. So much of the work of the ministry takes place out there in places that I, I could never go, right? In places that leaders in our church can never go, but you can. It takes place in your workplace. The work of the ministry takes place in your neighborhood. It takes place over the table at breakfast, right? It takes place as you interact with people throughout the week. There's the work of the ministry taking place. And listen, you can serve the Lord as an engineer, and not just you can, but you are called to serve the Lord in whatever you do. You're called to serve the Lord. If you're a school teacher, serve the Lord as a school teacher. If you're a parent, serve the Lord as a parent. Every single Christian, that means you, is called into the ministry. It is an every member mission. And you know what the posture of the people of God is? The posture of the people of God is not on our heels, it's on our toes, right? Our posture as the people of God is not on our heels, defensive, hiding and retreating from the world. No, rather just the opposite. The posture of the people of God is to be on our toes, on the offensive, going into the world to shine the light of Jesus and take the hope of the gospel into a world that really needs it. So the church is not, a, not the place where we huddle together to retreat from the world. No, no, no. You know what the church is? According to this, it's the classroom where we study. It's the gym where we train and prepare. It's the home base where we gather up to receive directives and be equipped and encouraged to go out into the mission that God has called us to in the world so that we can walk in those good works that he has prepared for us and so we can be used by him to do his work in the world using the gifts he's given us. Until, Paul says, verse 13, we attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. The goal is that we would become mature. And what that means is that we would help other people to grow in faith and in relationship to God, and ultimately that we would become more like Jesus. You see, rather than being like children, we want to grow up and become mature. The thing about children Right, is that there are a lot of things they can't do for themselves. They need someone to feed them, to clothe them, to carry them, to do things for them. But as you mature, you begin to be able to do more and more things for yourself. And as you mature even more, you begin to get to the point where you are able to help other people who need help. Verse 14, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunningness, by craftiness to deceitful schemes. So to be mature means that you have a firm footing. It means that you're rooted and grounded in God's word so you don't get carried away by every weird teaching that comes along or by whatever you read online or by whatever somebody might tell you that would carry you off in another direction. Verse 15, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. You know, some people would say, you know what the church is like? It's like a pyramid with the pastor at the top and everybody else on different levels below him. 
No, 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 no. That's not it, guys. That's not what that's not what we see here. The church isn't a pyramid. Some other people might say, you know what the church is like? Church is like a bus. The pastor's driving the bus. People get on the bus. Some people get off the bus. But if you stay on the bus, the pastor will take you where you need to go. No, no, no. That's not it at all. Is it? That's not it. You know what the church is? The church is not a bus. It's not a pyramid. You know what the church is? The church is a body. And in the body, every part has a function, and every part has a role, and every part matters, and every part of the body works together in this coordinated effort. And as that happens, what does it say here? It grows. It's going to grow in size. It's going to grow in strength. It's going to grow in health. And most importantly, as it says here in verse 16, it's going to grow in love. This is God's vision for the church. And it's God's vision for each of us as followers of Jesus and members of his body. And so I have a few challenges for you here at the beginning of this year as we seek to align ourselves with God's vision for our lives and for our church. Again, the idea here is this. I don't want you to say, well, let's see how this year goes and I hope I grow, but who knows? No, no. I want you to do a few things which I believe will ensure that you do grow and that you are transformed and that God works in your life this year. Here are those things. Three things. You ready? Read, pray, and commit. That's what it is. Read. I want to challenge you to read through the entire Bible in a year. And here's why. We talk about that culture of outrage, right? The first thing you do in the morning, read your phone so you can figure out what we're supposed to be upset about. Listen, what if instead you spent 15 minutes a day reading the Bible? Do you know that if you read just a few chapters of the Bible a day, you can easily read through the whole thing in a year? Think about that. Then you'll be able to say, I have read through the entire Bible. And more than being able to say it, much more importantly, you will be transformed as you take these life-giving words of God's word into your hearts, into your minds. You're going to be transformed. I want to challenge you to do it. We gave you a Bible reading plan so you can track yourself. You can use a different Bible reading plan if you want. You can read in the morning. You can read at night. But I want you to read the Bible this year. Okay, next thing I want to challenge you to do is to pray. We also gave you prayer points on this card. Put this on your fridge, and here's what we're praying for, okay? We've got some outreaches listed on here, that we're some activities that we're doing together as a church. I want you to be praying for those. Pray for our missionaries. You'll notice on there it says, pray for the empty chair. You know what that means? Look around the room. You see a couple empty chairs? Pray for the people who are not here yet. God has a place for them. There's an empty chair waiting for them. You know, we're going to redo our sanctuary here in just a couple weeks. We're going to start construction. Why? So we can make some more empty chairs so that there's more room for more people who want to grow in Jesus. And that's what we want to be, a place that makes disciples, okay? So we want to pray for those people who are not here yet, that God would bring them here, that God would prepare their hearts. And when they come in, you know what you're going to say to them when you see them sitting in that chair? You're going to say, bro, I prayed for you. Sister, I prayed for you. I prayed for you before I knew what you looked like or who you were. You didn't know me, but I've been praying for you, and now you're here. So we want you to pray for that. And, and really importantly, see those blank spots on there? I want you to fill that in with the names of a couple people or maybe a particular situation or something unique to you that you want to pray about this year consistently. Put that thing on your fridge. Be praying about it. And you're going to see God's faithfulness as you pray and as he works throughout this coming year. The third thing is this, commit, very simple. I want you to commit, I want to challenge you to commit to being here. Be part of this body, growing, serving, being equipped, and helping others grow. Friends, the good news of the gospel is that God loved you and he came to serve you in the most ultimate way. Did you notice something in verse 11? 
We read about five types of leaders that God gave the church. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. Do you realize that each of those roles is an aspect of who Jesus is and what he did for you? Think about this. In Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1, Jesus is called the great apostle and high priest of our confession. Jesus is sent by the Father. That's what an apostle is, one who is sent. Jesus was sent by the Father on a mission to save us. He lived a life of perfect obedience. He did for us what we failed to do for ourselves. He lived a life of perfect obedience to the Father, and yet he died not for his own sins, but for your sins, in your place, on your behalf, to take the judgment that you and I deserved. And then he rose from the grave, conquering death to make a way for you to have eternal life. Not only is Jesus our great apostle, he is also the ultimate prophet who spoke to us the very words of God. Jesus is also the ultimate evangelist who proclaimed to us the good news of salvation. He is the good shepherd who comes and cares for us and leads us and lays down his life for the sheep. And he is the ultimate teacher. All these are aspects of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. And before Jesus left this earth, he told his disciples, he told them, just as the Father sent me, now I am sending you. And so we who have been saved by God's grace are now called by Jesus to carry out his mission in the world. And we are not called to do that alone on our own. You know what? We're called to do that together as Christ's body in the world. Having been saved by God's grace, we form a community united by the gospel where we are equipped to serve and love like Jesus. Please bow your heads with me and let's pray. You have been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Make sure to tap the subscribe button if you would like to have new messages delivered to your device every week when they are released. If you have been blessed by this message and would like to support our ministry, you can do so by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or by giving a donation to our church on our website at whitefieldschurch.com.